This is Symposia producer Sage Tangway. This episode of Symposia was guest produced by WTJU intern Libby Eveland, with hopes of releasing it in time for Charlottesville's second Pride back in September. I'd like to take this opportunity to personally apologize for the late release. While we've passed a particularly festive opportunity, we hope that our interview between Dr. Benjamin Bernard and queer antiquarian book dealer and archivist Gerard Koskovich serves as a companion piece to our last episode featuring Dr. Emily Rutherford's talk about queer history and residential colleges. Thank you for tuning in. From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Symposia. Hello, hello. My name is Libby, and I'm guest producing this episode of Symposia. This episode focuses on archiving and particularly what archiving means to a marginalized community such as the queer community. I wanted to produce this episode because in Charlottesville, uh, we actually have two prides, which is really cool. There's one in June, and then there's one in September for students coming back to UVA. And I just thought it'd be a really cool way to kind of look at some of our history together. To start off, Sage Tangway and I had a conversation about what archiving is and just how much work goes into it. And right after that, we roll straight into the interview with Gerard Koskovich. Have you ever archived yourself? Hmm. Tell me more. Like, what do you mean? Have you gone through stacks upon stacks of various things, whether this be your own belongings something that you're doing for companies, something at school, and just had to either organize or just look and record what you're seeing? Yeah, so I I did a project at my old station. It's a little different. It, it wasn't literature. It was audio, but I, I had to interview a lot of people like uh, who were primary sources for what I was talking about. And uh, kind of sift through that. Um, I don't know if I've ever done it with print materials, actually. I don't know if I've ever sat and, and really delved into the printed thing just because I'm an audio producer. How long did that take you and how, like, what was the length of the era, if you will, hmm. of time that you covered? I was covering basically 1982 until present day. I would say I collected probably like 20, 25 hours of audio um, that then had to be made into four one-hour episodes. Now, imagine that you had those 25 hours of work of all those individual pieces of audio spread out all over the world, and you had not 50 years, but at least 200, if not more, years to go through oh man (laughs) (laughs) oh gasp like (laughs) that is just a lot it it would be exhausting I I for my project it took about five months 
to sort mm-hmm. of be completely done with that project um, from beginning to end. And I had the luck of the people I was talking to were still alive. If I mm-hmm. needed to record them again, that, that would have been possible. But the idea of approaching things created by people and read by people who are long gone mm-hmm. with no one to s- sort of explain what the is it's there for or what it meant to them at the time. Whew. It sounds fun, but it also sounds like quite the challenge. Archiving is such a unique thing that you can't quite put into context until you do it yourself. Um, so taking on a project, the likes of which Gerard, who we're going to listen to, um, has dedicated, people have dedicated their entire lives to archiving. And a lot of people, I would imagine, say, well, why do you do that? Like, we have the internet. There's archives. You don't need it. Ben and Gerard talk about how archiving kind of popped up for Gerard and what he's done with it, what he does in a professional sense, and kind of what it means to the queer community as a whole. And it's a really fascinating conversation. Uh, Gerard is very well articulated. It's just interesting to see how a lot of these materials have survived so long and what they're doing now with it. All right, at long last, we're good to go. You know, Gerard, if if nothing else, you're very patient (laughs) going through boxes of, you know, thousands and thousands of postcards waiting for the tech to work to get the setup going. It is one of the uh, uh, aptitudes necessary for this profession. Um, Can we start off by having you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, my name is Gerard Koskovich. I live in San Francisco and generally spend about three months a year in Europe, largely in France and largely in Paris, and I've been doing that for, oh, 25 years now. Uh, I trained as an art historian, did my graduate work at Stanford, and uh, on to work in the nonprofit publishing industry for a number of years, and for 15 years have been working time, uh, splitting my time between consulting as a queer public historian and working as an LGBTQ antiquarian book dealer, though books are probably a smaller part of what I handle as a dealer. So if you had to say in just a couple words what your job is, what's your job? Globally, my job is finding, ensuring the preservation of LGBTQ culture and related fields. Uh, so we might say, um, so we might say you're a cultural preservationist. Indeed, and at times I ho- I have been known to refer to myself as a cultural or historical entrepreneur. Okay, so what does uh, what does that entail? Uh, it, it entails drawing on my 40 years of experience in the sort of LGBTQ history, public history, collecting archival work and dealing to locate and ensure the preservation and use of 
of documents of LGBTQ history, history of sexuality, women's history, and a few other fields, immigrant minority uh, cultures, uh, the extreme right wing and the extreme left wing. Uh, and it's whether as a researcher or as a dealer or as a collector, going through millions of pieces of obscure paper and finding the useful documents from which we can begin to produce often alternative histories or lost histories. I want to come back to that aspect of paper in a, in a moment. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the kinds of objects, books, and paper and ephemera that you collect? So where does it come from? Who's producing it? Um, and maybe a, a few examples. Yes, and I even deal what uh, what book dealers refer as realia, which means objects that are not paper, a, a secondary part of, of my work. Uh, the trashiest levels of dual production that are not taken seriously by the cultures in which they're produced, that are often produced and distributed with minimal economic means and through clandestine or semi-clandestine networks. Uh, and those are areas in which we can see the efforts of marginalized individuals and groups to begin to produce some kind of culture, some kind of consciousness, some kind of political awareness to some kind of play history. And precisely because it's material that has often been regarded as worthless, work as material that should be suppressed, it's so, extremely difficult to locate. I mean, who, who are these queer people in the past who are printing ephemera that's meant to be tossed away? away? And, and can you give us some examples of, uh, of that and why they might've been important to those people? Yes, certainly. Uh, so, of course, one of the clandestine areas of production is erotica. And in cultures in which erotica of any sort was marginally tolerated or tolerated at all, queer erotica finds it pl its place at larger gray zone of cultural production. But isn't uh, there a way in which, you know, in the early 20th century that any anything queer would have been considered right, taboo, or, or erotic in some way? Not necessarily. It depends on the country. It depends on the social class that you're looking at. It depends on whether you're looking at uh, the dominant groups in a society or marginalized groups such as, as a recent immigrants or speakers of languages other than the language that's the dominant language in a country. There are often zones of liberty, tolerance, or just little interstices in which people can get away with things in every culture, and we need to look there. Also, depending on the culture and the time period, uh, queerness as we might now recognize it wasn't necessarily expected to be invisible. Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century in big cities, what we would now refer to as queer or trans people were part of the interesting, colorful aspect of the variety of urban life. And that increasing with the emergence of inexpensive print production distribution, that viewing the amazing oddities of urban life as a curiosity, as a just attraction, as a sign of sophistication, that that created a space in which a certain degree of visibility could, could, could emerge. So who are some examples of, of folks who have 
appeared in this tradition that you've dealt with? Are there are there any prints or books or um, that that come to mind as examples of of people uh, who are sort of celebrated examples of um, of urban culture? So certainly, we can look to the 18th century in France for figures such as the Chevalier Dayon, who was raised as a man, became a spy for Louis XV, and who, around the age of 50, transitioned while living in England and lived the rest of her life as a woman and became a highly celebrated figure with, with widely circulated prints with a couple of best-selling books recounting her story. And her contemporaries came to see her as having been actually born a woman and raised as a boy for instrumental purposes to receive an inheritance and then ultimately reassuming her proper womanhood. And it was a sign that women could become celebrated celebrated soldiers and allies if they were allowed to. At Dayon's death, uh, body was inspected found to have the morphology of a male. And so it opened this debate over what that meant that's ongoing. So there's an 18th century example. We could look at in the 20th century in really in the 1880s and onward, popular publications, 1880 when uh, universal elementary education became mandatory in France. And so you see emerging uh, a class of literacy of people who were working class people who were looking for popular entertainment in print materials. And so we saw cheaply printed periodicals, uh, prints, booklets produced that were pitched at the audience of people who were not trained in classical education but could read. And they wanted to read exciting, thrilling stories of oddities, of diversity, of weirdness uh, uh, that, that could be thrilling and titillating. And so you saw popular press emerging with stories about cross-dressing, about queer people, about lesbian workers, about little gay couples and their dramatic dramas, and one would get upset and jealous and kill the other one who have to be reported in a trashy town, but often with surprisingly sympathetic tone. It's still a little um, a little abstract for me. I want to know, like, who, for instance, um, who's, um, who's, who's going slumming and, you know, who are these straight people going to uh, see female impersonators in, in New York City, for instance? And, um, what is the kind of print that gets generated by by these cultures and kind of can I guess uh, are, are there any specific pieces that come to mind that that you've encountered as a dealer? Certainly less less for New York City than for other cities like Berlin or Paris. Uh, but we're talking about the 1920s. Even in the United States, there are trashy popular guides to big cities that that which bars that are frequented by female impersonators or which are the bars where you're going to see gay men and that it's colorful, fun, interesting thing to go see them. Uh, I have a, a French guide to uh, the district of Montmartre from 1925, the marvelous Art Deco cover. And it had a whole chapter on where to go see the queers in Montmartre. This is not a book that was published for queer people. And yet, of course, queer people also could pick up books like this and figure out where to go see their own kind. Right, so it's a uh, kind so of it's tourist guide. Spectrum. It's a tourist guide. And there actually were British and American tourist guides to Paris that similarly talk about, uh, about where to go see the queers in big cities that in the 1920s that was regarded as one of the tourist attractions 
in a big city is that you could go to the Chinatown, you could go to the light district, you could go to the fancy part of town with the expensive stores, you could go to the fine restaurants, you could go to see the queer people. But that was one of the tourist attractions. Would you be willing to humor me for a second? I want to see how many pieces that you've sold or bought as a dealer you can name and describe in, should we say, 30 seconds, just to give us a flavor of the range. Uh, Early on, when I was doing a large time work as a dealer, so this was about 12 years ago, I sold, I represented a private collector in selling his collection of 22,000 issues of American zines and underground periodicals. Uh, a substantial slice of those were queer, but it was every other kind of marginal form of print self-expression one could imagine. That's what zines are all about, starting from the 70s uh, onward with cheap cheap photocopy stores on your corner. So that's a big one, uh, though went to a major Ivy League library. Okay. Uh, or, for, or for example, I currently have in stock a... a uh, a small but very rich collection of primary documentation on the great Dutch anti-sodomy panic 1730 to 1732. That includes handbills announcing that people have been indicted for sodomy. It includes manuscript notes by a prosecutor in an otherwise unrecorded sodomies from 1730 in Holland. Uh, so those are... But sexuality collection that Cornell left with for 15 years or more on an on basis to put together a collection of vintage postcards representing cross-dressing for any reason. So those cards we can say merge on a red basis in the 1890s. This collection runs up really to the start of World War II and then a few outliers thereafter. And uh, the cross-dress can be music hall, male and female impersonators. So that was a mainstream popular color, but the performers were often queer. And uh, there's all kinds of ways in which cross-dressing is used in these postcards. They're also, postcards were published or printed by local photo shops. You could go have a photo taken and they would print your photo up in postcard format. So they're real photos of which maybe only five produced. Some of those are costume parties. Some of them are actually very queer looking. And at least a few of the postcards from the 1920 outright jokes about queer people, about cross-dressing, or friendly ones. There's one called uh, In, In the Wings of Our... Uh, theaters. Uh, it's a whole series, and one of them is in the wings of the Petite Chaumière, which was the most famous queer drag show in Paris in the 1920s. It wasn't female impersonation. It was queer, 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 and telling queer jokes, and the customers were queer, and that was just one of the postcards in the series. How many postcards do you think you've looked through? I mean, I, I've seen, you know, po- little postcard stands by the side of the road here, and, you know, it's it's postcards of cathedrals and castles and you know, the river going through the village and things like that. I mean, it, 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 yeah. Can you tell us about like the scale here that we're talking about? If we think so, uh, at one point a few years ago, I decided to try to take a guess about how many postcards I've looked through. And I did a calculation about uh, just about how thick is the back of 25 postcards. And using that measure in one week period of scouting, 
I calculated that I looked through more than 50,000 postcards in that one little three-week scouting trip. And I was doing a lot of other things besides looking through postcards. And I came away that batch with about 100 postcards of Ross Grant for a variety of reasons. So, so that's it was well out of, so that's out of 50,000. Wow. It's 100 out of 50,000. And that, I would say, is a pretty good percentage. Wow. It's often less. So uh, it sounds like part of the value added as a dealer is just that, you know, your clients don't have the time or expertise to be doing that sifting work. So can you tell us a little bit about this next step in the pipeline? I mean, who is collecting? queer antiquarian books and ephemera. And um, yeah, where, where, where does this material all end up? This reveals a way in which my dealer is distinctive. I don't have a shop. I don't have a website. I work with some private collectors, but very few. My primary focus as a dealer has been constituting research collections and trying to spot collections that respond to current search needs or to create collections that might spark new research needs. If we can borrow a phrase from Michel Foucault, not to people's current desires, but to create new desires. Uh, and certainly the Cornell postcard collection, which now has 1,200 postcards as an example, the fact that there's that large body of material ready available means that young researchers have been able to think of questions to ask and research to do that wouldn't have occurred to them otherwise. But a university allows them to have the staff out and spend three weeks looking through 50,000 postcards. They wouldn't know where to look. They wouldn't know how to ask. Uh, generally, we can't go into a dealer in vintage postcards and say, I'd like to see your queer and cross-dressing postcards. Uh, over the course of 20 years in France, I've always gone around and gathered all the current HIV, AIDS, and LGBTQ ephemera that's being produced. So all the brochures, booklets, flyers, stickers, cards, handbills, uh, free magazines, any kind of piece of paper that's being handed out free related to LGBTQ and HIV, AIDS topics. And so at bars, at demonstrations, at community centers, at community health offices, any place that I can spout that paper. Uh, all friends and colleagues know I'm looking for that. So I have a couple of friends in France who every time I have dinner with them a couple of times a year, they show up with a couple sacks full of free paper that they picked up for me at conferences and at events. Uh, and then I sort those inherent topical collections that would so, serve as as useful material for research. So an example is a collection that was acquired by the Wellcome Library in London, which is the world's major library for the history of medicine and public health. And that was a collection that over the course of 20 years, all the HIV AIDS related ephemeral paper found in France, I organized by organization, time period, wrote up right. a discussion. You can see by looking at this, and so now that's a collection that's available at the Wellcome Library. And in fact, I've digitized it. You can go see all this material online on their website. It had approximately a thousand items of ephemera, 125 different organizations in 60 different cities in four different countries where French is spoken. 
20 to 25 year time period that had important developments in the history of HIV AIDS in it gives you a kind of overview that if you wanted to do that as a researcher without election, you'd have to travel to four different countries, to six different cities, and so on. And you still wouldn't find all of this. A lot of it probably just ended up in the recycling and the oppie may be the one at, uh, at the library. Someday someone be- will need to write about the dealers. And I've done work on the history of dealers and collectors, LGBTQ material starting in, we can really find clear examples starting in the 19th century. Uh, and that it also raises that question about why did it matter? And during the era when print culture was the dominant culture, taking a claim to a place within the dominant culture meant I have a library. So early queer organizations often had a library as one of their initiatives. It was a way of saying, we're real, we're legitimate, we exist within our broader culture where a place in print culture is a mark of, of esteem and of existence. Uh, so the, er, the early example, of course, is the library of the Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin, founded by the pioneering homosexual and transgender emancipation of uh, Dr. Magda Hirschfeld. We founded uh, the first in, uh, like, modern trans clinic. He was a co-founder of the first homosexual emancipation organization in 1890 Berlin, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, which lobbied to overturn the uh, the sodomy law in uh, the German Empire. And he then uh, founded the Institute for Sexual Science. He was a sexologist and an MD. Founded the Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin in 1919, and it was a sort of all-purpose sexuality center. It had uh, a reproductive services clinic. It had a psychology clinic. It had a trans services clinic and was where some of the first gender confirmation surgeries were performed. Uh, it had a series of public lectures. It had a museum and it had a library and archives. And in all of these, what we would now think of as LGBTQ topics were central, but it wasn't exclusive to those. Here's vision was to play LGBT people within the broad field of sexuality and culture. And so he also dealt with those other topics. There's also some great new research, um, a recent book, for instance, on Magnus Hirschfeld's thinking about race and sexuality. So the ways that both of these um, ideas and, and gender as well were sort of imbricated uh, with each Ooh, other. And, his, and, and, life and, and imperial, right, of race, sexuality, under imperialism, uh, that that these can be traced in very various complicated and contradictory ways in Hirschfeld's work. But so, really, so the, his institute library was internationally known. It was world renowned, and see the ways in which it stayed claim to cultural respect. Because one of the first things the regime did when it came to power in Germany was to raid Magnus Hirschfeld's institute and the first great Nazi book burning in May on May 14, on May 10th, 1933, the primary amount of books that were being burned there were the books from Hirschfeld's library. And this was part of the propaganda. It was secret. It's appeared from Mori after World War II. 
everybody learns about that book burning, but they don't learn that it was Hirschfeld's Institute. That was and were there the, any, any books the, and papers that survived? So of the 12,000 volumes approximately in Hirschfeld's library, working with some of my other colleagues in public history and in book dealing, uh, notably my, my colleague uh, Schneider's in The Hague in the Netherlands, been able to come up with a list of approximate 45 books that are known to have survived the destruction of Hirschfeld's library. I'm very honored and lucky to own one of them, the only one in North America that has all the live stamps clearly. Uh, and fortunately, a fellow dealer online 20 years ago mentioned those rubber stamps uh, and uh, didn't really know what they meant, but said what that what was there. Uh, so there are a few known survivors. It was a lending library. It probably was simply that the book burning was such a, uh, a chaotic public festival of hate that a few people probably took a sneer home with them. Uh, and the books managed to survive in that fashion. You, you mentioned before how sometimes your friends will look out for you and collect papers and ephemera when they go to uh, events from the queer community. Um, I'd be curious to hear from you about how the internet has changed the production and commemoration of the traces that communities leave behind and how that's also affected not just your work as a collector, right? Because, you know, things that would have generated paper in, you know, 50, 75, 100 years ago might generate a Facebook event today or uh, a WhatsApp group or you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and then the second piece of that, of course, is how the internet has changed the book dealing trade, right? Certainly a major change. And again, this is something that we see with some differences depending on individual cultures is that over the last 30 years, the extent to which print ephemera is produced has dropped radically. Of in the course. United States, it's really a point where there's virtually none. Uh, traditionally, I've always gone, for example, to the old Pride Parade at San Francisco, the big community festival at the end where there are booths set up for various nonprofits and services providers, and I would collect all the ephemera. And uh, uh, 30 years ago, I would have to bring two genetic tote bags, and I couldn't collect everything. Uh, the most recent one, this past weekend, I went and I managed to collect about 30 brochures. And that took some real serious work. Nobody's producing print camera anymore. Uh, you can still find buyers advertising bars and clubs, but not nearly as much. Now, conversely, in France, it's still a much more print culture. So I find a lot more, but it's still a third of what was being produced 30 years ago. And I did a speaker in Japan about four years ago. I loved it because Japan is still enormously print-based culture. And having things on paper is a sign of respect and importance. And so when I went to the uh, queer community center in Tokyo, my colleagues who took me pulled out tote bags and said, we knew that you'd need these when you got here. Half the place was just tables full of books and booklets and brochures and flyers. And so it was a very print-based culture. It's it's varies across time, but clearly this digital born documents and images that are the dominant 
record of our era, if we talk about the last 20 years, and how are those going to be preserved and made available? The fact now has generation of digital-born documentation. And interestingly, there's an emerging role for antiquarian dealers there as well. Uh, and I've increasingly been asked to handle collections of personal papers, organizational records, in which a significant part are all emails that were received by the individual organization for all of their digital photos or their laptop or a hard drive full of their word processing documents uh, from whatever generation. And that that is not really physical material, and yet it is crucial research material. And so increasingly, we're emerging with a kind of emerging dialogue between institutions and dealers about how to describe and value digital-born material and how to ensure that that's preserved and made available to researchers as well. So I'm, I'm currently handling a, a collection of um, papers of a filmmaker that are going to a university library on the East Coast. And part of that is digital-born material, recordings of audio and video interviews with this filmmaker that exist only in that form. So the institute will receive a hard drive with digital files on it, along with boxes full of fantastic paper with correspondence and film programs and so on. Uh, so that's simply remaining attentive to the way that the record of our cultures and our history is evolving and finding ways to ensure that it continues to be preserved and made available to researchers. Dealers, institutions, organizations, private individuals all have a role to play, and we haven't quite yet put in place what will be the conventions of those roles. It's fascinating to be involved in the development of that set. thing about print and specifically more art is that there's definitely more of a freedom in what you can draw what you can say because one example i know of is the legend of Korra. um that show came out in like 2011 or something like that and in the final two seasons the writers decided that they wanted the Two, main, two of the main characters, Korra and Asami, to be in love with each other. But Nickelodeon said, nah-ah-ah. Um, so they couldn't do that. But the minute that the show ended, they made a comic book. And one of the first scenes in the comic book is Korra and Asami kissing. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, we're going to get it in there somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like that I've heard other stories like that, especially when it comes to television there's quite a bit of like queer readings of of Tolkien and and one of the the biggest examples of that is the seduction of Celebrimbor by Sauron in the second age he's basically the magical smith who is convinced to create the rings of power by Sauron in the first place in the show they really kind of um switch out Celebrimbor and Galadriel uh so that then Sauron is more seductive towards Galadriel, which totally goes against the lore. Um, but it <laughs> lore is a moment. <laughs> yeah, it is a much more like heterosexual 
situation. In the interview, Gerard talks about how a lot of these queer ephemera are just kind of there. And it started giving me the sense of a lot of this stuff is out there. We just don't really quite know where to look. Yeah, I I think uh, the other thing that I got out of my own conversations with Gerard was just, you know, this reminder that queerness is very old. (laughs) It is not like a new phenomenon. And uh, we have paper evidence of, of that happening, both openly and discreetly. I think that's why both obvious ephemera and publications, but also things like queer readings of, of certain stories are really important because it's like, yes, there were times where this couldn't be open and, and openly talked about. And that doesn't mean people didn't write about it. It's just heavily coded. And um, we, we have to kind of read between the lines in those cases. But it, it's really nice to just like look back and and realize like oh yeah okay cool more information about Gerard Koskovich can be found at abaa.org Symposia is a production of the Brown College Community Media Initiative and the Virginia Audio Collective this episode was produced by Libby Eveland with assistance from Sage Tangway